This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. And by the end of the first day, in walks my office mate. He just looks at me and he goes, hey, I'm going to smoke a joint with you right now, so if you don't want to be around this, you need to leave. <laughs> <laughs> and I pulled out my joint, and he has whipped out this bag of stuff that's like green and purple and really interesting looking. <laughs> and he, he goes, no offense, but I'm going to smoke some real stuff here. <laughs> and uh, so I thought, oh, you know, pot snob, that's interesting. <laughs> Hey, welcome to Commando On Demand, where we interview the movers and shakers and those who make a difference in technology and even how we live our digital lives. I'm Mike James, and today we have a very special guest. Kim welcomes Howard Scott Warshaw to Commando On Demand. His name might not be familiar to you, but his work definitely is. Howard was one of the most successful game designers at Atari during the height of their success. Kim talks to Howard about some of the crazy things, well, you might have just heard one, that were going on at Atari and all the way through the gutting of the company and how he left to become a psychotherapist to some of the most successful entrepreneurs in the Silicon Valley. And by the way, this is not the nationally syndicated Kim Commando show on over 400 radio stations nationwide. And that show is available every week as a podcast that you can download or watch on your time. And it's only available in one place, and that's GetKim.com. GetKim.com. By the way, if you use promo code KIM, you get a seven-day, no-obligation, free trial just to see if you like it. Again, that's GetKim.com for the full podcast of the three-hour Kim Commando show. All right, we're going to get started in just a few moments with the fascinating story of Scott Warshaw today on Commando On Demand. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC member SIPC. It's the Commando On Demand podcast where we talk to some of the most influential people in technology. And today, Kim is talking with one of the most successful game creators at Atari. Kim is here. Howard's here. Howard, welcome to the Commando On Demand podcast. Thank you. I really appreciate it. So let's start with the video games, okay? Um, Sure. The first job you had? My first job was Hewlett Packard. I was a uh, multi-terminal system engineer. I did networking applications for Hewlett Packard. And, you know, I had avoided computers like the plague all throughout uh, my high school and college career until I got to a point I was studying economics and math. And at one point, one of my professors said, you know, you have to have computers if you're going anywhere in this business. I said, well, okay. And so I, I nudged my way into a computer course and oh my God, what a revelation. And you loved it? Suddenly here was, 
I loved it. I, I just totally conquered computers. It was, it was amazing because it was this brilliant solution to all my college issues because now all I have to do is solve puzzles and essentially, uh, you know, play games for my degree instead of having to write long papers and read long meandering books and stuff. And it was like, so for me, it was like a dream come true. You know, it is like solving a puzzle when you start programming things. And I remember, absolutely. you know, I don't remember what languages you were learning at that time, but um, when I was studying computer science is that it was like COBOL and Fortran and it I was both of those. And it was so much better, like you said, than sitting down and saying, let's write a paper about Gone with the Wind or something like that. I'm like, oh, no, that's not going to work. Exactly. It, it's solving logic puzzles and, and figuring things out in an interesting way. And it's just it's so joyful. And it was exactly the kind of it's like what I like to do for play instead of what I like to do for work. And so that was amazing. So I zoomed through computers ended up getting a master's degree in it. And then I went to Hewlett Packard and all the joy that I had found in computer programming disappeared. <laughs> and I was so depressed. So you're... depressed. It was unbelievable. It's funny because my first job was a programmer for IBM. And I had all of these <laughs> I had all of these delusions of grandeur that it would be phenomenal, it'd be great. And I absolutely hated it. Uh-huh. I can totally understand where you're coming from. In fact, I actually, IBM talked to me initially. It was a very funny moment. I, I had already gotten flown out. I went to school in New Orleans, Tulane. And so uh, Hewlett Packard got my resume, and they flew me out to California. And I had a, an interview, an all-day interview. At the end of that day, they made me an offer, and I accepted it. I thought, okay, there we go. I'm done. I'm all set. Now... <laughs> I was very happy. And then like a few days later, IBM had gotten my resume somehow and they called me up and, uh, and they said, Hey, we'd like to fly out for an interview. I said, well, you know, that's very nice, but I've already accepted an offer from Hewlett Packard. And they said, well, did you start working there yet? And I go, no, he goes, well, then you can still come talk to us. And that was my first introduction to software business ethics. <laughs> it was like, uh, I said, you know, I said, I don't know that IBM's really kind of the place for me because I'm kind of a flamboyant and uh, kind of wild and crazy guy. And uh, I said, I don't know if IBM's the environment for me. And he goes, oh, I know what you're talking about. Because you think we're all just a bunch of button-up, stodgy people. He goes, but I have to tell you that uh, we have really loosened up here (laughs) at IBM. (laughs) And I said, yeah, really? And he goes, yeah. He goes, like, for instance, a lot of our engineers, they don't even have to wear ties anymore. (laughs) And I just started laughing at him. I said, you know, I don't think we're talking about the same thing here. And so, you know, now tell us about your first day at Atari. Oh, that's a whole chapter in my book. My first day at Atari was a transformative experience. It was unbelievable. As depressed as I was at Hewlett-Packard, because the inability to express myself and having lost all the joy, because what I used to do was real-time microprocessor based uh, control system, which was very unusual back then at that time for someone coming out of college to have that. And Atari, that's what they did. So when I show up at Atari, right away, I'm looking at manuals and intricate hardware stuff and figuring out how to manipulate it and how to deal with it in interesting and new ways. And that's exciting. And then the people, 
are just amazing. <laughs> it's just this wild uh, concoction of people. Uh, everyone there has different interests. No one there was like just a programmer. Everyone there was a programmer plus like a ship maker or a musician. And most of them were artists of some form or another or some sort of craft people. And so it was a very interesting group of people with lots of wild ideas and uh, a lot of really uh, spontaneous exchanges that went on. And so that was exciting. Well, I, and, I heard uh, about maybe one of those first spontaneous exchanges included marijuana. Uh, well, actually, a- absolutely. <laughs> I wondered if you wanted to go there. There's, uh, marijuana was uh, just a fact of life at the time. And uh, it was all over the place. And what was funny was I had known about this from my interviews. <laughs> During my interviews, people said, you know, they have to say to you at some point, you know, uh, if, I don't know how you feel about marijuana, but, you know, you're going to be exposed to it. <laughs> you're here. <laughs> it's like, I did not have a problem with that at all at that point. That was fine. So on my first day, I actually brought a joint with me. Because, you know, as a rule, I don't program stone because I don't think that's a good way to go for me. But, uh, you know, playing games, it's a great thing to do stone. So I would separate, you know, my stone time from my non-stone time. But uh, <laughs> when I came in the first day, I wanted to be a good, you know, playmate. So I brought a joint with me just in case. And by the end of the day, you know, everything had gone well. And I'm sitting in my office, you know, reading some manuals. And in walks my uh, roommate my office mate, and he comes in, slams the door, guy named Todd. And he looks at me, because I'm the new guy, and I've hardly talked with him much at all. He just looks at me and he goes, hey, he goes, I'm going to smoke a joint in here right now, so if you don't want to be around this, you need to leave. <laughs> <laughs> because people were pretty straightforward at his party. And so I looked at him and I said, hey, uh, you know, actually, uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to join you. I said, in fact, and I pulled out my joint. I said, here, you know, I'd like to, you know, offer this up. And he takes one look at it. And, and he has whipped out this bag of stuff that's like green and purple and really interesting looking. <laughs> and he, he takes one look at me. He goes, no offense, goes, but I'm going to smoke some real stuff here. <laughs> and uh, so I thought, oh, you know, pop snob, that's interesting. But, uh, and he rolled up a joint. We smoked that joint. And at that point, I realized I was not dealing with a snob. I was dealing with a connoisseur. <laughs> and that, you know, that Atari was the kind of place that forces you to up your game in a lot of different dimensions. And that was, that was a very interesting start to a career at Atari. So fast forward, you, you created Yar's Revenge. How many copies did that sell? Uh, well over a million. How did you in come fact, up? Every one of my games sold over a million. I think I'm the only programmer who can make the claim that every game I released for Atari was a million sellers. Wow. So how did you come up with the idea for Yar's Revenge? And I, I see that there's somebody's name in it as well. Right. There's, there's a number of interesting stories around Yar's Revenge, that's for sure. And uh, so I go into all this very elaborately, of course, in my, uh, my book that should be out this summer. But uh, basically, Yars originally was assigned as a game called uh, Star Castle. And Star Castle was an interesting coin-operated game, but it was my opinion that it would not adapt very well to the system we were on. You know, when you have to adapt one game to another system, just like doing anything in a new medium, uh, there's the question of how much integrity can you bring to the translation. And it was my judgment that, 
even though I hadn't been there very long, it didn't take very long for me to comprehend the hardware and the capacity of the system and realize this game would basically suck on the 2600, which is what I was working on. And I did not want my first game to suck. I needed to make a good game because this was very important to me. Sure. So I went to my manager and he just said, hey, this isn't going to work. Can I do I, But I had an alternate suggestion. I said, I can rearrange uh, some of the dynamics and then we can just make up some other stuff. But I think this would be a better approach. And he was like, okay, go ahead. Do it, which was an amazing freedom that we had there. And so I just started doing it, going in a different direction with the game. It wasn't Yard's Revenge yet. I was just working on a game. Eventually, you know, through a lot of machinations, it became a pretty popular, well-playing game. And then it came time to name it. And, uh, you know, when you're a control freak and a creative person, it's hard to let other people name your baby. Sure. <laughs> so it's like I thought, I need to come up with a name for this. Also, it was a great opportunity for uh, a bucket list item of mine which is to add a word to the English language. I've always thought that would be a cool thing to do. Yeah, it And I is. realized, you know, well, look at Pac-Man, right? You know, if you have a really popular game, the name of the character becomes common parlor. So I thought, here's my chance. And so I tried to make up something and everything sounded stupid. So finally I thought, you know, I need to stop making up just random words. I need to have an algorithm for how to name this game, something that makes sense to me. So I decided, you know, revenge, Great title word, right? Because everybody wants revenge at some point or another. And, and then for the name, the character, I thought, well, what's, what's a name that nobody argues with in the company? And I thought, ah, Ray Kazar. He's the CEO of the company. Nice. So I thought, well, let's spell it backwards. You know, what's Ray backwards? It's Yar. Well, that's cool. That sounds kind of sci-fi-ish. And, uh, and Kazar, what's that? That's Ray Zach. I thought, great, it's all, it's all Y's and Z's, right? And that's what you need in sci-fi. You need a lot of Y's and Z's and maybe some X's, right? So I'm thinking, yeah, the Yars. So it's the Yars Revenge and the Razak Solar System. I'm thinking, yeah, I like that. And then I thought, what's better than a name? What's more what's stronger than a name? I thought, oh, a name and a story. So I stayed up all night and wrote a story. Uh, like a nine, ten page little sci-fi story about how the yards came to be and what their circumstances and why they're seeking revenge, and uh, submitted that. So just the clincher is what I did to marketing. I heard about marketed marketing. Hey, don't forget if you have a question about something digital, get unbiased tech advice from America's digital goddess, Kim Commando. Simply go to commando.com and in the upper right-hand corner, click on "Be a Caller." And we'll get a couple of details about your questions. And then we will set up a time where you can talk to Kim and ask her your question. It's pretty simple. Again, that's be a caller in the upper right-hand corner of the homepage of commander.com. K-O-M-A-N-D-O.com. And just ahead, it's more of Kim's conversation with Howard Scott Warshaw on Commando On Demand, including his top secret marketing tactics for his game and meeting Steven Spielberg. Just ahead. Hey, Commando On Demand is all about keeping you up to date on everything digital. And today, it's Kim's conversation with Howard Scott Warshaw. Back to it. Here's Kim. So you have Yar's Revenge. You stay up all night. You come up with this 10-page story. And it's brilliant because, I mean, how is the founder or or how is the head of Atari going to say no to the name because his name's in it? 
you know, you could have called it mixed right. revenge. I mean, I would have liked that. Um, so how, how did you <laughs> sell it? Worked too. How did you sell it to marketing? So what I did was I got it submitted and the next day I saw the marketing manager and I said, Hey, are they, is the name in? And he goes, yeah. He goes, have they made a decision yet? He goes, no, not yet. I said, okay, I want to tell you a secret. I said, are you okay with that? He goes, yeah. I said, but look, you have to promise me you won't tell anybody because I don't want this to affect the, the naming of the game. And he goes, all right. So I swear him to secrecy multiple times. And then I say, look, Yar, the name of the character, spell that backwards. And he goes, uh, uh, Red. I go, right. And, and Razak, you know, where it's all happening. What's that backwards? And he thinks about it. And he goes, uh, Kazar. And he goes, he goes, Ray Kazar. Oh, my God. He goes, does Ray know about this? And I said, of course Ray knows about it. So I, I wouldn't do this without Ray's knowledge. I said, but that's why you can't tell anybody because I, you know, I don't want it to unfairly influence the naming of the game. <laughs> and he's like, oh, okay. So, and it's like, and so he says, I swear to secrecy one more time. And then he takes off. And at this point, I know three things, right? I know, first of all, he is going to run right back to marketing and tell everyone about it. Of course. Yes, he is. <laughs> and, and two, I'm pretty sure that nobody in marketing actually has the balls to go talk to Ray about this. Because that's just the way it is at Atari with the power structure. And three, that's a good thing because Ray knows nothing about this whatsoever. I just made this up the night before. So, so now, like, and then the fo- so now yeah. you, so so now you have Yars Revenge. It's out there. It's selling like gangbusters. And then Atari gets approached from Steven Spielberg to do the next video game. Was that Raiders of the Lost yeah. Ark? That is Raiders of the Lost Ark, the first game from a movie. And so that also sold over a million? Absolutely. And yeah, so well now you went to go visit Steven Spielberg to seal the deal. How did that happen? Ah, that happened delightfully. Well, the thing was that Spielberg had to approve the programmer who was going to do Raiders. So this was like one of the great days of my life, I have to say. Because uh, I love movies and TV and everything about them. I just love them. <laughs> so always been a big fan. And Spielberg, I was a huge fan of Spielberg. So I'm going to get to go talk to my idol. But I'm talking to him about a work project, which is also kind of funky. <laughs> but I fly down. I get up super early in the morning, which I hate to do. Get on an airplane, which I love to do. Fly to L.A., which is not bad. You know, and I go to Warner Studios. for my, And I arrive right at his office like 9.25 for my 9.30 meeting. Nice. Which was 400 miles away from where I started. <laughs> and, and the first thing they tell me is, uh, your, your meeting's been rescheduled to 3.30. Oh, no. And really? I'm like, what? You moved my meeting six hours? I flew here from San Jose. You know, it's like. I got up I at the crack of dawn for this. What's going on? Exactly. I'm thinking, what the hell? But, but then I realized, you know, hey. This is a movie studio. So I said, hey, can I just go hang out until then? Yeah. All right. So I had to spend a day unescorted running around a movie and TV studio, which for me was like fabulous. I stole stuff from sets. I just, I really enjoyed myself. They had, <laughs> they had no idea, Howard, what they did. They, they, were, they were just they like, no idea. Just get and this guy out of our end, office. Yeah, and then we top it off. I get to sit down with Steven Spielberg, and I had brought a copy of Yars Revenge, and we played that together. I showed him the game. We talked a little. But there was one point in the interview where something occurred to me, and I thought, you know, I, 
I can't miss this opportunity. So I said to him, I said, you know, Stephen, I have a theory about how you are actually an alien yourself. I said, would you like to hear it? And he's like, sure. And so, and I told him the story of how I believe that, you know, if we're going to meet the aliens, you know, they're not going to just show up, you know, in a spaceship and go, hi, here we are. I said, they're going to be smart enough to do a little recon and a little socialization. And they'll send an advanced team to prepare us to meet the aliens. And I said, you know, look at you. You make these, these movies where aliens are friendly and, and we can meet them as nice. And, and everybody sees these movies. They go all over the world. I said, so I figure you're part of this advanced team, you know, and you're the production arm. And you got your marketing people who are amazing because they're making sure this movie is seen in every language all over the world. And we're getting ready. So it's like, I'm enthusiastic about meeting the aliens. So I just want to say, nice job. You know, you're doing great. And uh, so... And I, I think that story got me the game more than anything else. To tell now, you the was there, I'm just curious, was there anything about Yars' Revenge that's Mr. Spielberg looked at you and said, you know, Howard, this is okay, but I wish it was more like this? Um, no, he didn't do that about Yars' Revenge. <laughs> he did do that with E.T. Okay, which leads us to the next game that you get approached by Atari to say, hey, you know, can you help us launch this? Now, you've already had a success with Steven Spielberg. And so now, of course, the heads of Atari think, well, you know, let's send Howard back. How did that go? Uh, that went pretty well. It was it was kind of crazy because when it came time to do E.T., uh, I had heard that Spielberg actually requested that I do it because he was very happy with what happened on Raiders. And uh but the thing was that when it came time to do E.T., they had only left five weeks to, to make the game. Five so weeks? Squeeze, five weeks. Now, Yars Revenge took seven months, and Raiders of the Lost Ark took ten months. Most games take at least six months to do. And, but between the negotiations and the window they needed to hit the Christmas market, that squeeze that left them only five weeks. So, yeah, people asked for me to do it, and Atari was interested in me doing it. But the truth is, nobody would try and do this. I was the only person crazy enough to even attempt this. And so that's one of the main reasons I got to do E.T. So, and uh, I did. So, so you took it on. I did. And I'm looking at E.T., the extraterrestrial game, the reviews right here. Yeah. Um. You have oh, yeah. you have a lot of one star reviews, and a lot okay. of three star reviews, and a lot of four star reviews, and then you actually got a lot of five star reviews. I mean, like here, here yeah. for example, this guy Victor wrote online. I bought this game back in the eighties when it first came out. It was like nothing before. I couldn't believe what people said about it, and then they buried it. What a mistake! They buried <laughs> the game. They buried it. Yeah. They buried the Gordo, New Mexico. Okay. Why would Atari want to bury all the cartridges of this video game? Well, on some level, you could say that just the abject shame that they felt at having produced a game at this level of quality. Some people might say that, but that I don't think that's true. But uh, there was a whole movie you may be aware of called Atari Game Over that explores the whole, it was an urban myth for a while that all these parts got buried out in the desert somewhere. So there was actually a Hollywood movie that was made to explore this concept and look at a bunch of things. But 
And they did. They did a whole excavation. It was a modern-day archaeological event to go find out, are they there? Did they throw millions of parts into the desert? And why would they do that? Was it that bad a game, so bad that they had to actually get it away out of their minds, out of their consciousness, and under the ground? It's a very interesting proposition. So why do they call it the... alert. They were there. (laughs) So why did people call it the game that you created in five weeks, the worst game ever? I mean, that's Um, a big title, the worst video game ever. Yeah, worst ever. To tell you the truth, the honest truth, I don't believe for a second that E.T. is actually the worst video game ever made. But I prefer, I prefer when people do recognize it that way, because Yara's Revenge is frequently cited as one of the best games of all time. So as long as E.T. is the worst game, I have the greatest range of any designer in history, right? So that's kind of cool. But why did people think it's so bad? It's because it commits what, what I think is the ultimate sin in video gaming. What is and that? that is, it, uh, in a video game, it's okay to frustrate. In fact, it's essential that you frustrate people in a video game. Otherwise, there's no success sensation. But you can't disorient people. And because there was no, the thing that got lost with ET was tuning time, right? So I was at baby, I was able to deliver my initial concept and not able to refine it and elaborate it, as I usually do with a game. So in that tuning, I would have cleaned up a number of things, which didn't get a chance to get cleaned up. And one of the things is there's too many times in ET where a new player is suddenly thrown into a situation where they don't understand what happened. Oh, I see. Yeah. You know, yeah, that's, you know, that's like tough. Basically, in a video game, it's like you see the cookie jar. You walk into the kitchen for a cookie, and you see the cookie jar, but you can't reach the cookie jar. You have to figure out how to get the cookie jar. That's frustration. But sometimes in a game, you walk into the kitchen for a cookie, and suddenly you're in the garage. You know, how did this happen? That's disorientation. And E.T. does a little too much of that. Up next on Commando On Demand, the rise and eventual uh, horrible fall of Atari and how they cut 80% of their employees. Can you imagine? And Howard's long path to becoming a psychotherapist. Again, that's next on Commando On Demand. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. It's Commando On Demand, and today the fascinating story of Howard Scott Warshaw and his now exit from Atari and the long road that he had to walk to be a psychotherapist. Here's Kim. So about the same time, Atari starts running into trouble, right? Uh, Yeah. And the CEO was fired. Hundreds of people (laughs) get laid off. And then did you get laid Thousands, off? Yeah. Did you get laid off too? No, not you... then. No, what happened was you no know, things started to turn down. Things were going bad. There was a there was a there was a very clever programmer 
at Atari. And he used to say that, you know, we're working at state of the art, right? Because this was the state of the art of video games at the time. And he used to say, you know what state of the art means? State of the art means when it's broken, nobody knows how to fix it. And I always think that's such a brilliant definition of state of the art. And the thing was, when things turned down at Atari, the people who were in charge weren't really responsible for the success of what went on. I think they were just kind of riding the wave. And so when things turned down, they didn't know how to fix it. They didn't know what to do about it. And they panicked. And, you know, they did some things maybe they might not have done. <laughs> and, and yeah, it's true what you said. So, so Atari in 82, or late 82, has an overall employment probably in excess of 10,000 people. Wow. Jeez. And, uh, and Ray Kazar is the CEO. Then he gets fired. And they bring in, uh, you know, because Ray Kazar was a big big industry, he came from Burlington, right? He was a big industry, high level exec kind of guy who's not really the kind of person you want to manage a brand new, you know, high tech entertainment company, you know, new kind of stuff. But that's what they did. So when they got rid of Ray, they brought in another classic, huge business industry, classical manager, a guy from Philip Mark. So he comes in and remember, these were the days of corporate raiders. Right. So he thought, I know what we'll do. Here's how you fix it is you we're spending, we're spending too much money on people. So he started laying people off and he took Atari over several months from 10,000 people to 2,000 people. He cut 80% of the staff. That's, you know, I was still there. That's huge. So to go from 10,000 to 2,000, I mean, but gosh, gosh, there was no line to the bathroom anymore. (laughs) No, a lot of things were easier to access. (laughs) <laughs> including the parking lot. So eventually, you do you leave Atari, or do they actually get rid of you? Well, what happens is he can't fix it, and so then they end up selling it to Jack Trammell and the Trammell, people who formed Commodore and then left Commodore, and they were taking over Atari. And what they did was they came in and did the second round of cuts, and they took Atari from 2,000 people to 200 people. And I was still there then. But what happened then was it was really clear that they didn't want to do game development. They wanted to make a home computer. And I knew how to do that, but I was not interested in it. So what they did was they offered everybody a deal so you can either be here and work on the computer or you can do games in a new structured deal that was horrible or you could take a layoff package. You get your choice. So I chose to take the layoff package at that point, and uh, that's when I left the building. That was in 84. So, so you went from computer programming to doing psychotherapy. Well, not directly. I went from computer programming to real estate brokership, back to computer programming, to software management, to professional photography, to writing several books, to movie making and filmmaking, and then back to software management. And then to psychotherapy. <laughs> okay. So a little bit of a diversion path, just a bit there. Um, a bit. Yeah. A little meandering. So now you've described yourself as a psychotherapist of Silicon Valley. Yes. A Silicon Valley therapist. That's me. What? I'm one of the few therapists with an actual software development background, particularly in entertainment software and high pressure development. So how are the issues that you deal with in Silicon Valley say different than maybe somebody who has your position in San Diego. 
I would say I, that's a really good question. I think the thing that's different about Silicon Valley is, you know, in most places you have a broad spectrum of issues among people generally. In Silicon Valley, it's much more focused on anxiety. You don't, I mean, people get depressed out here occasionally, but depression is, is more, much more prevalent, I think, in other places than it is in Silicon Valley. And it's not that people are so happy in Silicon Valley, but I think they're just too anxious to be depressed. <laughs> so is it, is it because uh, it's a highly competitive environment and everybody's trying to absolutely. up each other? You see, Silicon Valley, you have to think of it like this. Silicon Valley is a place where people all over the world, there's people who've been number one their whole life, right? They've been the best in their grade school and the best in their high school, best in their college, the best in their neighborhood, the best in their country. And then they come to Silicon Valley and they meet everyone else who's been the best all along. See, so the way I put it is Silicon Valley is the place where the, the world's best, brightest, brightest, and most ambitious people come to be average, okay? And for a lot of people, that's a huge come down. That's a major adjustment. When you're used to having been the top of the heap all the way along, to suddenly be just another Joe, just another person in the mix, that's a strange adjustment to make in your mind. There's super intelligent people dealing with uh, having to be uh, uh, typical in a way they're not used to being. So but how do you people that's very hard. How do you counsel them to deal with this type of issue? I imagine that it would be devastating. I think it would be like me all of a sudden, you know, I'm Kim Commando. I have a lot of my identity wrapped up in being Kim Commando. That Yeah, and I'd say that was a good investment in your case. <laughs> yeah, and I was born but, Kim uh, Commando too. I mean, I, who could have dreamt Kim Commando would be like a great radio and TV name, right? It's like um Well, I could so, so, but I would be, it would be like suddenly everything would be gone. And actually, I sometimes I look forward to that when I can just go to the supermarket and nobody looks at me in my boxer shorts and T-shirts and actually happen. My sister got a phone call. She said, did you go to Safeway in boxers and, uh, and a T-shirt? <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? She said, there's a picture of you posted. You look like a bag lady. And I'm like, oh. No, really? So, I, so, so, but it would be, you know, so when, when, and if that time comes, there will be a transition for me to go back from being in the public eye to just being just a, you know, a mom and a wife and a daughter and good things like that. So how right. do, or there may come a time where everybody has their own radio show, which is happening with podcasts. You know, there are, how many podcasts do you think there are out there, Howard? Oh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions. Okay. There's 900 and about 996,000 podcasts. Okay. There we go. Okay. Now, how many of these podcasts do you think get updated that they've been updated within the last 90 days? I would say 3%. Well, it's, that. It's, it's, well it's higher. About 50% of them have been updated. Oh, that's impressive. Yeah. So, you know. I better get working. So, so how do you tell people back to Silicon Valley? How do you tell people how to deal with this? Well, every case is, is individual. That's one of the things that I love about being a psychotherapist is that it doesn't become monotonous, right? Every, every case, if you're really present with it, is unique. But generally speaking, if you're going to do it, what it is is 
people who get really upset to discover they're not where they thought they were, uh, usually that's about looking outside yourself for validation as opposed to finding it inside yourself, which is the only place you can really count on it from. So as a general idea, one of the things I really try to do is help people see themselves more accurately and understand and value themselves, not just artificial bluster, but to truly appreciate where they are and be a little more focused on who they are and where they need to be than to be focused on outside themselves and comparing themselves with others. If you can make that transition, then you have the possibility of achieving satisfaction. Which is, you know, uh, internally, at, at the end of the day, you know, you you can have all the money and power, but if you're not content, and I've explained this to uh, the kids in my family, you can have everything, but if you're not content where you are, that's a very difficult position to live in. Right. And we're, we're surrounded by a lot of people today who are brilliant examples of the idea that you can have a lot and not feel satisfied or okay in your life. And it's, it's, you can be satisfied with, and you like people think they're chasing happiness, but satisfaction I think is really the goal. It is. Happiness is a transitory state. It is. And, you know, just like I've, I've also said to uh, the kids in my family that, you know, you can have all the money in the world. And still be miserable. Money, money doesn't buy happiness. What money buys you is freedom. So that if you want to be able to take a trip, you can take a trip. If you want to go out to eat, you can go out to eat. But if you just have money and you go out to eat, doesn't mean that you're going to enjoy the experience. Exactly. Now that's brilliantly put. Brilliantly put. And I think that's so true. Is that money does in our economy? Money equates to freedom. What you do with the freedom and how you use that freedom. Do you do it? Do you use it in a way that makes you feel okay, makes you feel fulfilled, makes you satisfied? You know, that's uh, that's a big question. And the thing is, when you really are pursuing satisfaction, you find out it's not as expensive as a lot of people think it is. You don't necessarily yeah. need that much money to be okay and to be satisfied. And, and to go outside so, every once in a while, put the screen down. Yeah, and connect. That's the big irony of. Uh, social media and our technology, in my opinion, is that uh, it's giving us the, in the illusion of building connection and networking and community. And in reality, it's keeping us from actually dealing person to person with other people. And maybe we're starting to lose some of our capacity for uh, social skills and interaction. And that's, that would be a big loss. Well, I read uh, recently, I think it was in the New York Times, where teachers are now having to to work with younger students, I'm talking kids 10 to 12, where they're trying to give them empathy. Oh, yeah. Because empathy is something that you experience, but you cannot get that by texting or snapping or Instagramming somebody. It, this, it's, it's more of a, it's a human communication trait. It is. It is, and it's so important. And what's interesting, something that I think I've realized recently, you know, video games a lot of times are attributed with uh, in, in creating violence, right? The idea of violence in video games. And do video games create violence? And the truth is, if you really look at the statistics, uh, they don't. 
the fact is that if you look at video game players, violent video game players, and non-video game players, the incidence of violent acts in those two populations are virtually identical. So it's not really the case that video games increase violence, but it does feel like a more violent world these days. But what does impact violence or propensity for violence is a lack of empathy. And I think what you've identified there is a huge factor, is that there may be a way that technology is reducing our normal way of cultivating and developing empathy. And I think there is danger in that for us on a societal level. Not to get too big about the whole So let's go back to Atari for just a second, because I want to know more about your documentary. And are you going to mention me in your book? How could I not? (laughs) You could say, I was going to call it mixed revenge, but I didn't meet Kim Commando yet. (laughs) No, I'm going to go, you won't believe who was wearing boxer shorts at the supermarket. Great. With their hair in a ponytail and no makeup and, you know, looking at, you know, mangoes or whatever I was looking at. Well, I'm betting you could make that work. <laughs> well, thank you, Howard. You're sweet. So you have your documentary and your book. Is it taking a lot of time? More time than I bet you thought, huh? It has. I'll tell you something. I've learned an important lesson. If, if we ever learn anything in life that some people fear. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, with E.T., the big problem with E.T. is that I had to rush the project. And that really shorted it. And this is a book, I'm writing my book now about Atari and my experiences with Atari and how Atari has impacted my life. And which is, you know, for me, it's a big story. I hope other people enjoy it. But I got to say that it, I expected it to go a lot quicker. This is my fourth book. And all my other books were much quicker to write. And so I've been approaching this like, this shouldn't take this long. This shouldn't take this long. Why is this taking so long? But the mistake I made with ET was pushing it out before it was ready to go. And I decided not to do that. I'm not going to make the mistake with the book about ET that I did with making ET. And so I'm committed to it, but it should be done by this summer. And uh, the early reviews of some of the uh, manuscripts that I've got rolling so far are very positive. So I'm very enthusiastic about it. I think it's uh, going to be a very fun read and going to be just like having a conversation. with me. Since you mentioned ET and making your book better than ET, I just found yeah. this on online from Peyton, who three months ago put this online about the E.T. game. It's the best game ever. It made me and my wife not get a divorce. And when I was playing the game, E.T., I felt heaven pass through me. It's helped me get a job. It cured my depression and cancer. It helped me get to meet God himself. It was amazing. I love E.T. forever. And after I die, I will pass on the game to my kids. And hopefully they will pass it on to their kids, too. Wow. Wow. I have not heard that review before, but I must say, I'm not going to argue with the guy. (laughs) But uh, I mean, what I would say, I would say two things. First, I would say that, you know, it's it's a real honor to feel that I have had that kind of impact on someone's life. And it means a lot to me to know that people got some entertainment and value also, as a therapist, the idea that I've saved this guy's marriage with a video game I did all that time ago really validates the idea that I'm becoming a therapist was the right move for me. Good, but, good and answer, on the, Howard. The other thing, but the one other thing I have to say about that interview is, you know, there's a lot of copies out there of ET. You don't have to wait till you're dead to pass it on to your kids. Okay, <laughs> just wanted to put that out there. <laughs> Not a problem. While you're getting the while you're getting the game, make sure you buy the book and watch the documentary along the way too. 
By all means. Howard, thanks for joining us. You're awesome. Sam, it was a real pleasure to talk with you. Anytime you want to chat, I'm here for you. Well, a special thank you to our guest, Howard Scott Warshaw. And, of course, we thank you for listening. If you haven't already, these episodes come out every Tuesday and Friday. Get them downloaded automatically to your device by subscribing. And if you know somebody that would love these podcasts, well, be sure and share it with them. We would appreciate that. Again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Commando On Demand. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. So, you've got an idea for a business, the store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out, everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 